0: You are Locked On Rockets, your daily podcast on the Houston Rockets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome in to another new episode and a new week of Locked on Rockets, your home for podcast commentary on all things Houston Rockets basketball. As always, I'm your host, Ben DuBose, Rockets correspondent with Sports Talk 790, the team's official radio flagship in Houston. Today's show is brought to you courtesy of our friends and sponsors over at Vivid Seats. Download the Vivid Seats app or go to vividseats.com and use the promo code On, and you can get a $20 discount off your first purchase of $200 or more as a new customer. As we chat this Monday, we are now just 24 hours away from the NBA season officially tipping off. Of course, we do have a little over 48 hours until the Rockets season actually tips off. That's because the Rockets are not a part of the opening night schedule this year. They open up at home on Wednesday night, nationally televised on ESPN, against Anthony Davis and the New Orleans Pelicans. After getting a well-deserved weekend off following the big win in Friday's preseason finale in Memphis, the Rockets were back at work today at practice at Toyota Center. Most of the regulars that had injury concerns are expected to be out there on Wednesday against the Pelicans. The two rotation players that there are some questions about, or potential rotation players, I should say, are Michael Carter-Williams, who's missed the last three days of the preseason with, or three games, I should say, with left knee soreness, and then Brandon Knight, who we still don't have an exact timetable from as he works his way back from an infection in his surgically repaired knee. But aside from those two, the Rockets should be pretty much healthy and ready to go, and assuming that continues, they appear to have the backbone of a 60-plus win team again as long as they have relative good health, which they didn't even necessarily have last year, and they still won 65 games. That's how good this team led by James Harden, Chris Paul, and Clint Capella is. Now in tomorrow's show, we'll start looking at New Orleans in particular and previewing that matchup, even though it's just one game out of 82. I know there's always more intrigue with the season opener, especially when it's at home and it's on national TV. We'll get to that tomorrow. But for today's show, we're going to keep things a little broader and do an NBA season preview particularly the Western Conference. That's not to say that the East is irrelevant, but as far as the Rockets are concerned, it's about getting another crack at the Warriors and taking them down in a seven-game series the same way the Rockets almost did, but ultimately came up one hamstring away a season ago. If you get past the Warriors and you get to the NBA Finals, you can deal with whoever emerges from the East then. So for today's show, what I'm going to break down are what I see as the three tiers of the Western Conference entering this 2018-2019 season, what it means from a Houston perspective, and what you should be looking for when you watch games like, say, tomorrow night when the Rockets aren't playing but there's other NBA action. What should you be cheering for or hoping for as far as the ideal Rocket scenarios, starting with that Thunder-Warriors game tomorrow night? Well, that's what I'm going to fill you in on. And in today's show, we're going to start with the Tier 1 teams. We'll make our way to Tier 2 and Tier 3, starting with the best, making our way to the worst. But Tier 1, teams that I actually see as true contenders. And of course, it's Houston and Golden State. Golden State's the two-time defending champions. They've got two MVP candidates in Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. They've got four All-Stars when you add those two, plus Clay Thompson and Draymond Green. They've got a great coach in Steve Kerr. They've got chemistry, continuity. Oh, and as he comes back healthy, they also added Boogie Cousins, another All-Star, this offseason. So, yes, they won 58 games compared to the Rockets 65 a year ago, but they're every bit at the Rockets' level. Uh, at this point, you have to say above, regardless of winning seven fewer games a year ago because, well, they got it down in the playoffs. And Chris Paul injury or not, the fact is the Warriors are the two-time defending champions, and you're not going to accomplish anything in terms of winning a ring without going through them. So we know the the Warriors are going to be there. We don't know exactly what the timetable for Boogie Cousins is. But the Warriors, they're the gold standard in the Western Conference and the NBA. That's who everything is about for the Rockets at this point in time. I do, however, feel pretty strongly that the Rockets are up there as a 1A, 1B with Golden State in that top tier. I know there are some around the NBA that might question that. We've seen a few articles this offseason saying, well, are the Rockets really the second-best team in the West after losing Trevor Ariza and Luke Mute and all the scare tactics? But my response to that, and we've made this case plenty of times here at Lockdown Rockets, is that it's not so much the role players that made the system in Houston, it's the system in Houston that made the role players. In other words, if you can put guys like James Ennis, like Michael Carter-Williams, like Carmelo Anthony, although in Carmelo's case he's replacing Ryan Anderson more than either of the two wings, then that system is going to make it easier for them to focus, to compartmentalize in ways that they couldn't when they're on a team like, say, Michael Carter-Williams in Charlotte a year ago, or James Ennis in Detroit, and Memphis. Those types of dynamics. So I think it's the system that makes it work for the role players more than the reverse, and the results we've seen in the preseason. Look, the Rockets, even with Clint Capella and P.J. Tucker missing 40% of the preseason, with Chris Paul, James Harden, and James Ennis as the only guys that played all five games of the preseason, the Rockets still were number four in net rating in the NBA, number two in offensive rating, still top 10 in defense, even with Capella and Tucker still missing extended time. So I feel pretty confident that things are coming together just as well as the Rockets have said they are in training camp in the preseason. They feel good about replacing what they had a year ago, and... Let's keep in mind, the Rockets, with that big three, 44-5, when you have Chris Paul, James Harden, and Clint Capella together, that's a dominant trio. And by the way, to start last season, they didn't even have Chris Paul healthy. Keep in mind, he missed 14 in the first 15 games and got off to, the Rockets did a slightly slower start, a 60-win pace, compared to the 67 games after that, and they were on a 66-win pace. So... There's lots of reasons, in my opinion, to think the Rockets might have improved. That's what Mike D'Antoni says. He thinks they're a better team, but I certainly don't think they've had much of a drop-off. I think they're right up there with Golden State. Now, the seven-game margin a year ago was a little bit exaggerated because the Warriors had that perfect storm of injuries down the stretch. Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson all going out at one time. When they were healthy, you could point out that both the Rockets and the Warriors, they had about the same record. They were in a game or two. It felt like the entire year, but if you really want to be optimistic for Houston, you could point out that, hey, the Rockets and Warriors were running level a year ago, and that was with Chris Paul missing the first 15 games of the year, with James Harden having the first and only significant injury of his Houston tenure, missing two plus weeks with that grade two hamstring strain, those types of things. If you really wanted to squint hard enough, you can make a case that Houston, a year ago, was consistently better when healthy over 82 games, and in the playoffs for that matter, than Golden State. Now, I'm not really going to argue that because, look, Golden State's the two-time defending champions. I would argue they're the most talented roster ever assembled, so until someone actually beats them in a seven-game series, they're the gold standard. But even with the role players being shifted around to some degree in the offseason, I feel pretty confident that, until proven otherwise, I'm putting Houston up there in that top tier. As far as any other teams in the top tier, that's what makes it interesting. Because a year ago, there was so much separation in the standings. The Warriors at 58, the Rockets at 65 wins, and then no one else even had 50. So in terms of putting yourself in position to get back to the Western Conference Finals, well, the first thing you have to do is get a top-two seed again to put you where you have home court advantage in the first two rounds. That makes you a prohibitive favorite. And then hopefully after that, you can get to your goal number two, which is having a better record than Golden State so you actually have home court advantage again and get Game 5 and Game 7, the, the most meaningful games, at Toyota Center rather than at Oracle Arena. So are there any teams that weren't close a year ago? Keep in mind, the closest team to the Rockets last year was the Portland Blazers at 49 wins. That was 16 games away. Can anyone close that gap? I tend to say no. When I did this show a couple of months ago, I'm sure a lot of you may remember this, I fixated on Oklahoma City as the biggest potential challenger for the Rockets and the Warriors as far as breaking into that top tier. And the reason I believe that was the benefits of continuity. I think in year two of the Russell Westbrook-Paul George partnership, you could see them find success in close games that kind of evaded them in year one. The underlying metrics always indicated they were a little bit more Uh, of a better team than the 48-34 and record would indicate. However, after looking at the injury situation and the results in the preseason, I'm actually more bullish now, at least in terms of regular season record, on Utah than I am Oklahoma City. I still see Utah as a Tier 2 team, but to me, if any of those Tier 2 teams are going to take a leap up, it's going to be Utah rather than Oklahoma City. The mitigating factors for OKC, in my opinion, first off, the Andre Robertson injury is just a killer. He's by far their best defender. And after having a setback in his recovery from a patellar tendon injury, he's out for at least the first two months of the season, looks like. And I'm sure after such a major injury costing him at least twelve months, he's gonna be a, a very slow build as far as getting him back to optimal conditioning after that. It's not like you can just put him in and pencil him in for 30 minutes a night as soon as he returns. There's going to be lots of questions even when he is cleared. And then Russell Westbrook, it looks like he's not going to be ready to go for the season opener tomorrow night. Still questionable, but he hasn't taken contact, so I doubt they put him out there in a game. He had a scope last month on his knee, that knee that's given him problems for years now, really going back to the 2013 playoffs when he injured it infamously in that collision with Pat Beverly in that first Thunder Rockets playoff series. But Russell Westbrook is getting to a point, the knee issues are becoming a concern, at least for me. This is a guy who's going to turn 30 years old next month. He's got a decent amount of mileage. He's asked to do a whole heck of a lot for that team. He's had repeated issues with the same knee. And I'm not convinced that his game is going to age especially gracefully. Here in Houston, we deal with that question a lot, and Daryl Morey has said repeatedly, and I agree with him, that Chris Paul and James Harden are going to age a lot better than other NBA stars in large part because their games are so cerebral-based, and I largely agree with that. With Russell Westbrook, who is so so dependent on that quick-twitch muscle fiber, if you will, to me, there's a very thin line between the Russell Westbrook we have now, which is a top-ten player in the NBA, in the NBA and an occasional MVP candidate, and a Russell Westbrook who's just an inefficient chucker. And to me, that thin line is his peak athleticism. Once that goes, I think you might see different positions, but a similar decline in Russell Westbrook's game to what you've seen in Carmelo Anthony the last couple of years in New York and Oklahoma City. Now, Carmelo is trying to reinvent himself here in Houston, although I don't think he'll reinvent himself into a star. I think he'll reinvent himself as to hopefully a more efficient role player. But to me, that's what I see with Russell Westbrook coming. At some point, I don't see Russell Westbrook at 35 years old being a star player. I just don't see the skill set translating over the long haul, especially with the repeated knee issues he's had. Now, is that going to happen this year, necessarily? No. Again, 30 is not over the hill, but it's something you have to be mindful of, especially when these issues keep creeping up. And this particular knee issue concerns me with Westbrook a little bit more, because if it, if it were just a routine maintenance, a scope type thing, well, you do that in July or August so that you can be ready to go for the start of the year and give it ample time to rest. If you were at James Harden's charity weekend in August, as I, I was, and I'm sure a lot of you listening were, Russell Westbrook was there, and he might have been the most active player on the entire court. He was bouncing around, dunking on everyone. That's not typically something you do when you're anticipating having knee surgery or trying to take it easy. That leads me to believe it's less just routine maintenance, because if that were the case, then conceivably it could have been done earlier in the offseason, and at bare minimum, I think you wouldn't be as active as he was playing in charity games, and it's more an actual injury, something that happened over the weeks between the charity game and that surgery in early September. And when you factor in a knee that's already had a lot of mileage, has a lot of medical history to it, it worries me. Does it mean that anything's going to happen in terms of a major decline this year? No, but it's something that over the next two or three years, and it could conceivably start this year, he is turning 30, it's something to be mindful of, especially because I just personally, I could be wrong, but I don't see Westbrook's game aging as gracefully as a lot of other stars, most notably James Harden and Chris Paul. So because of that situation and the Andre Robertson, to get back to the point, that's why I'm no longer as bullish on Oklahoma City as number three team in the West. The team I'm going with now, it seems to be more of the consensus. That's the Utah Jazz. They were 5-0 and in the preseason, I believe, number one in the league in rating. They had just a ridiculous point differential of, like, plus 30, although a lot of it came against non-NBA opponents, so you do have to adjust for that. But it's easier to see a roadmap for the Jazz to have a 55-plus win season and conceivably get in the mix. Do I take them as seriously in a playoff setting as Houston or Golden State? No, I don't. But Over the course of a regular season, you know as long as Rudy Gobert is healthy and Quinn Snyder is the coach, they're going to be a top-five defensive team for sure. They have one of the league's best home courts in Salt Lake City, small market, one of the most engaged fan bases. That gives them a leg up compared to big market teams over the grind of an 82-game season. They squeeze out some more wins based on that raucous crowd. And if Donovan Mitchell takes the next step, he could have a sophomore slump. There's a reason that term is out there. But if he continues to progress, if he continues on his current trajectory to him then all of a sudden you combine Mitchell with that level of defense, with that home court, the altitude, everything that comes with that, and all of a sudden, yeah, you could see them in a perfect storm scenario winning 55 to 60 games. I still think it's unlikely, but when you combine how solid they look in the preseason and their relative health compared with Oklahoma City that seems to have a lot of issues, that's why I'm going with Utah now rather than Oklahoma City as my top Tier 1 challenger. Now, I still think Oklahoma City, if they get healthy by the playoffs, might be the most daunting threat of the Tier 2 group, but we'll have to wait and see, and we can talk about that when we get to February, March, and April. For now, going into the season, to me, if you're worried about a team making a challenge to that top two that's not currently in what I call the Tier 1, it would be the Utah Jazz. Now, in terms of the other teams in Tier 2, we'll be talking about them in just a moment. But for now, I do want to pause and acknowledge our awesome sponsors over at Vivid Seats because without their support, we would not be able to bring the show to you as frequently as we do the most regular podcast covering Houston Rockets basketball. And if you want to go to the Rockets' home opener Wednesday, or really any other game this season, or even a concert, entertainment show, whatever it may be, I strongly encourage you to visit our sponsors over at Vivid Seats because they have you covered. They make it so easy for you to attend the concert, show, or sporting event of your choice, and all at a great price. That's because they're the top source for tickets for all live events, and they make the buying process so easy and so friendly for users. You can sort by price, or you can even look for seats in a specific section and row of your choice. Now, to make things even better and save even more money, Vivid Seats is giving our Lockdown Rockets listeners an exclusive promo code for new customers to receive $20 off their orders of $200 or more. To take advantage of that, go to the App Store, or Google Play, or go to vividseats.com, and after you download the app or go to the website, use the promo code On, and you'll get $20 off your orders of $200 or more as a new purchase, with every purchase backed by a 100% buyer guarantee. So folks, from the biggest concerts and games all the way down to the hottest theater and more, Vivid Seats has it all. So make a memory that lasts a lifetime and let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite event. And yes, that could even include Wednesday's season opener for the Rockets against the Pelicans. So in closing, support our sponsors, download the app, and enter the promo code Locked On for $20 off your orders of $200 or more as a new customer. So jumping back into the program, we spent the first segment talking about Tier 1 of the Western Conference in this upcoming 2018-2019 NBA season. Not that I'm ignoring the East, I'm aware of the games, I watch them for entertainment value, but at this point, from a Rockets perspective, I'm focused exclusively on the West because it's about A, getting to the Western Conference Finals to get your next chance at Golden State, and B, hopefully having home court advantage again in that setting so that if Chris Paul's hamstring doesn't go out in Game 5, hopefully you can close the deal like the Rockets appeared poised to do a year ago, just a few months ago, in late May. So, first segment, we're talking about Tier 1, which is Houston-Golden State, and also, if there's any challenger to that from the Tier 2 teams, who could that be? I settled on Utah. I'm not putting them in Tier 1, because I think there's a big gap between the top two and the Utah Jazz, but to me, of the Tier 2, and last year, I would consider Tier 2 3 all the way through 10, because really, 3 through 9, you had the Blazers at 49 wins, and the nine seed was Denver with 46 wins. Then you had another team above 500, being the LA Clippers, forty-two and forty at the ten spot, so I would consider that your three through ten. And this year, I would say it's really three through eleven because you've got to throw the LA Lakers with LeBron James in that mix as well. So I would say tier two includes a whopping nine teams, everyone other than the Rockets and the Warriors. And why is this relevant to you as a Rockets fan? Well, again, the reason I'm ranking this is because you want to see if you got to get back to the Western Conference Finals to get your second shot against Golden State in the playoffs. Well, who do you need to worry about in terms of actually? putting yourself in the right position to get back there. So to me, Utah, at least over the balance of 82 games, is at the forefront of the list. Oklahoma City, I still think they're clearly a 45-plus win team, probably a 50-plus, assuming the injury to Russell Westbrook isn't too bad. I'm just not having them at the forefront of the list. The other teams are very, very interesting to me. There's so much variance. I personally think that I give a little more deference to the L.A. Lakers. I know they won 35 games a year ago, and there's a lot of unproven besides LeBron James. But there's two things that make me a little worried about the Lakers. First, LeBron James, we have seen the past few years. He hasn't been in the regular season what he is in the playoffs. And a lot of that's for conditioning's sake, I think. But some of it might be just sheer boredom. Well, this year, he's not going to be bored. He's going to be energized based on a fan base that loves him and adores him a new setting. It's kind of like a shiny new toy. So if you have a more focused LeBron James, then imagine if you get the playoff version of LeBron James seen more frequently in the regular season. That's why it would not throw me for a loop if we have a better LeBron James, even at 34 years old, than we have seen in some time. So even with the questions around him on that Laker roster, between that, a very energized fan base that should provide quite a home dynamic, similar to what we said with the Utah Jazz, although kind of the opposite in terms of the logistics of how it works out and who's at the games. But because of that, I tend to give the Lakers the benefit of the doubt. I also think in a playoff series, they're not a team I would want on my side of the bracket, just because at any given time, they probably have the best player in the series, no matter who they're playing, assuming LeBron James is still LeBron James, and that's always a little daunting in a sport as great as the NBA, or as dependent as the NBA is, on great players, I should say. Now, as far as other teams in Tier 2, Denver and the LA Clippers, to me, you're going to see very similar. You might see both of those teams getting a little bit better, Denver especially, just through the benefits of continuity. I don't see a radical outlook change for either of those two teams. Portland, I worry a little bit about. The sweep in the playoffs, Portland seems like a situation where, because they're capped out, there's not much in the way of avenues they have to further upgrade their team. And oftentimes when that happens, once the resolve is tested, as I think is occurring after going out four o against the New Orleans Pelicans, it wouldn't surprise me if the chemistry is a little bit shakier this year, the first time they face a little bit of adversity, so it wouldn't surprise me if there's a little bit of a pullback, it felt like they kind of outperformed their Pythagorean, if you will, their point differential a year ago, so I'm, I'm personally a little, I, I would sell on Portland, if you're asking me 49 or better, I would take them for a little pullback, not that they're going to be bad, barring injuries, but I just don't necessarily like psychologically where they're at as a franchise. Flip side, one team that I could buy into in Tier 2 is the New Orleans Pelicans. Now, there's a lot of questions because DeMarcus Cousins out, uh, Julius Randall in. There's been a few changes. But keep in mind, A, uh, Boogie Cousins didn't even play in the playoffs a year ago. So when we're talking about the team that made the run down the stretch and then beat the Blazers in the playoffs, sweeping them also pushed the Warriors a little bit. Boogie Cousins wasn't even a part of that. And the other reason that I could see a good scenario or a good season for the Pelicans is To me, you're going to see them being very aggressive in terms of the trade deadline, any potential acquisitions, because we are not very far away from the inflection point with Anthony Davis. Because with him having a player option in the summer of 2020, that makes the the prior summer, which is next summer, 2019, the point in which the, the Pelicans need to get a sense of where they stand with him. Because if they don't like their chances of re-signing him, as we've seen with Kawhi Leonard, as we saw with Paul George, as we're probably going to see with Jimmy Butler, you're going to get a lot more in return for a player if you trade him with a full season or most of a season still left, as opposed to if you try and do an opt-in and trade or a sign-in trade at the last minute. So, to me, the Pelicans know that this is a key year for their relationship with Anthony Davis, so I think they are going to do everything possible in terms of being aggressive to further upgrade that team. So that's why... other than injuries, I struggle to see a scenario where the Pelicans aren't a 50-plus win type team this year only because that front office, that ownership, they have every incentive in the world to make this work. The two teams in that 3-11 through 11 range that we haven't discussed yet would be the San Antonio Spurs and the Memphis Uh, or the Minnesota Timberwolves, excuse me. I'll start with the Spurs. They're a little bit boring, and they're also now injured. Lonnie Walker, the Murray injury against the Rockets, it seems like they can't catch a break. But keep in mind, they only had, they went 47 and 35 a year ago, and that was with Kawhi Leonard playing just nine games. 82 games of DeMar DeRozan or anything close to that if he stays healthy. While he's not peak Kawhi Leonard, it's better than nine games of minutes-limited Kawhi Leonard. So the Spurs, yes, their depth is going to be tested. They've already had a lot of injuries. But as long as Greg Popovich is there, the defensive culture should be strong. I don't really see any upside with the Spurs, but they seem to kind of be on the Dallas Mavs plan from a few years ago in terms of trying to let... Dirk Nowitzki go out on a semi-high note. That's what they seem to be doing with uh, Greg Popovich and just kind of going on the mediocrity treadmill for his last couple of years. But there's just too much pride, too much culture. I don't know if they're going to make the playoffs because the bar to get in the playoffs in the West is so high. But I don't think you're going to see a huge fall-off in terms of could any of the Tier 2 teams... Fall to tier three. To me, the one place you could have a hypothetical fall off would be the Minnesota Timberwolves. It seems like they're going to start the season with Jimmy Butler, but I'm personally very skeptical that that lasts very long. Now, maybe if it lasts beyond October, it's good news for the Rockets because as of October 31st, the Rockets will be eligible to package and aggregate Brandon Knight and Marquise Chris into trades anywhere in the NBA, including in a hypothetical Butler deal. But look, with Butler's situation, I don't see the Timberwolves waiting until next summer and seeing what happens, because it seems clear that that relationship is fried, it's pretty much done, and even if they can make a little bit of it, because they do have overwhelming talent, Uh, there's a reason last year when Butler played, they were the third or fourth best team in the West the entire time by record, because Butler, Carl Anthony Towns, Andrew Wiggins, it's a very talented team, and Tom Thibodeau... Uh, at least on a game-in, game-out basis, can get his team to play hard. Now, I don't think he has a ton of long-term vision, but in terms of maximizing wins in the short term, yeah, he's solid. And so... To start the year, I don't know what the chemistry mix is going to be like, but at least talent-wise, yeah, they're going to be fine. They're not all of a sudden going to be bad, even if the chemistry is disastrous. There's too much talent there. However, they could become bad because I just can't see them keeping Jimmy Butler and taking the risk if he doesn't want to be there because I mentioned this last week, but Jimmy Butler does not fit the opt-in and trade scenario at all. He's 30 years old. He's got some mileage. I don't see him opting into the final year of his existing deal at 20 plus million. He wants to get paid. He wants that $150 max contract. And as far as that $150 million contract that he'll be eligible to receive, the Supermax, there are going to be so many teams with max slots that he can walk to that I don't think the Timberwolves can bank on orchestrating a sign-and-trade to recoup some value. I think there's some bruised feelings now, both in terms of the Timberwolves' front office, ownership... Butler's side and I think that's why everyone's kind of taking a step back trying to pause the negotiations if they will but I'm pretty confident they'll be back on and whenever they deal him based on the circumstances they're not going to get peak value so to me that's where if any team of that nine falls off I'd actually say Minnesota is even more likely than San Antonio to fall off because I just think there's enough culture in San Antonio and in the veterans DeRozan, Aldridge, Gasol, Gay, etc., to at least keep them passable, whereas Minnesota, if and when they move Jimmy Butler, all of a sudden that could go south in a hurry, in my opinion, especially if it seems like Tom Thibodeau might be on the way out as well. So, to wrap up, Tier 2, what are you looking for? Teams that could potentially challenge the Rockets. Right now, I'm going with Utah at the forefront of the list, then Oklahoma City, then the L.A. Lakers, because... To me, Oklahoma City is still the most challenging in a playoff environment, I think, assuming they're healthy, but I wouldn't put LA far behind them because uh, LeBron James can be the best player in a playoff series, no matter who he's going up against, even the Golden State Warriors, he's just that good. So to me, those are the three, Utah, Oklahoma City, and the Lakers, that you clearly fear the most in a playoff environment. And so to me, it wouldn't shock me if there's a little bit more separation in this second tier. I wouldn't call any of them true contenders, but you might not see everybody compressed between 46 and 49 wins again. You might see a little bit more top-heavy in terms of, again, Utah, OKC, Assuming Health, and the Lakers. To me, those are 50-plus win teams. I'm not so sure about the rest. Maybe the Pelicans, I could put them up there. I might see the Pelicans over 82 games being comparable or a little better than the Lakers. But to me, you're going to see more separation. Not a huge difference, but not quite as jam-packed as it was a year ago. In terms of predicting who misses it, because of that group, three has to miss out. I'm going to go with the Timberwolves because they ultimately trade Jimmy Butler. I'm going to go with the Spurs. They'll stay in consideration. I just don't think they have as much upside. And as far as picking a third team that misses, it's tough, but I'm going to say the Portland Trailblazers. I think the Trailblazers and Nuggets have comparable outlooks. I just think there's a little more optimism. There's a little more of a healthy psychology component to the Nuggets situation as opposed to what I think is going on in Portland where there's a, there's a sense that... It's maxed out, everything is tapped out as far as their current team talent base and without much avenues to improve. It wouldn't shock me if it's a season where it felt like they over they underachieved a year, or excuse me, it's felt like they overachieved a year ago. This one might be one where they underachieve a bit. Now as we finish out today's program. Let's turn our attention to the third-tier teams, which aren't very many because it's a loaded Western Conference. Again, we went through 1 through 11, and you can make cases where 11 teams make the playoffs. So who does that leave? The Sacramento Kings, Dallas Mavericks, Memphis Grizzlies, and Phoenix Suns. As far as can anyone from Tier 3 jump into Tier 2, The closest, I would say, is the Memphis Grizzlies, only because if they're healthy, and that's a big if, but Mike Conley, Mark Gasol, there is culture there. Maybe you get some semblance of a bounce back from Chandler Parsons. Rockets saw the Grizzlies twice in the preseason. They didn't look bad. I still think it's a reach to go, especially with their age, to assume that they're going to be healthy over 82 games, but if there's a team towards the bottom of the West that you could see being more thorny than the record from last year or the current roster might indicate, I'm going to go with the Grizzlies. The bigger takeaway from those four, well, first you need to maximize your wins against those because in a Western Conference where really you're 11 deep in terms of potential playoff teams, really, there's not many easy wins out there. So when you play one of those bottom four, you absolutely need to take advantage. And no disrespect to the Phoenix Suns. I know they added Trevor Ariza and uh, who else? Ryan Anderson, of course. They'll have Tyson Chandler, a lot of veterans. I believe they're signing Jamal Crawford. I'm certainly not expecting those to have any sort of major move up in the standings to lead that in 2018-2019. The real thing to watch with those teams, and this applies to the Eastern Conference as well, what are the margins? Are they bad or are they historically bad? The biggest Rockets' impact is going to be on buyout candidates. We talked about this last week, but in Phoenix, Trevor Ariza and Tyson Chandler— in Dallas, conceivably West Matthews, really any player on an expiring contract. I think the Kings may have a couple as well. I think Costa Kufas fits the mold. Any player with a expiring deal, occasionally two-year deal on a bad team, they could conceivably be let go at the deadline. And for those players. Conceivably, the Rockets will be near the forefront of the list, because not only are they a contender, which those types of players usually go for, especially on short-term deals, but the Rockets also have most of their mid-level exception available, so the Rockets are better than most teams, and they'll have most money uh, the most money amongst teams pursuing those types of players, the contenders, that is. So the Rockets, they're going to be big buyout players, but the question when you get to those buyout names, will the player actually get free? The analogy I drew last week, and I think is appropriate, Brooke Lopez, everyone said last year that Brooke Lopez was going to be available in buyout season in late February. He wasn't. Why? Because the Lakers won 35 games, improving from about 25 the year before, and that was enough of a benefit to their narrative, their perception, that it absolutely played a role, in my opinion, in making them more viable for LeBron James. And that's what these types of teams that are on this treadmill of lottery seasons, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for any kind of perception boost. Can they make the playoffs? Probably not. But if they can even get go from say 21 and 61, which the Suns were last year, to 31 and 51, that's a big move up in terms of their perception around the league, their viability as a destination to prospective free agents and potentially their agents. So that's what you need to watch with those teams. To me, you want to see. Of course, that you fatten up against those teams, but also, do you have some historically bad 15 to twenty-one win type teams? If you do, then to me, that puts the Rockets in a stronger position because it's going to lead to a stronger buyout market. Because if those teams, if some of them surprise to the upside, they're winning 30, 35 games, there's value to that. We're seeing that with the Lakers right now. They're not going to want to give up on that season, the player that's helping them. Again, no one actually, or I shouldn't say no one, but rarely do you see a buyout candidate that's let go because the team actually thinks they're better off without the player. No, the the buyout players are generally let go as a favor to the player and their influential agent because the team realizes, look, we're not going anywhere. We might actually be incentivized to lose more because of the race for top draft picks, although tanking, so to speak, should be mitigated a little bit with some of the draft lottery reforms in the NBA. But the point is that it's not like it's ever really a desirable thing to part ways with the player. They do it because they feel hopeless. If these teams have hope, then yeah, it's going to make them less likely to pull the trigger on letting go of players that could benefit the Rockets. So if you care about players from those tier 3 teams, if you want a shot at those veterans that are stranded in those weird situations, the Ariza, Tyson Chandler, Wes Matthews types, then you just you don't want them to be kind of sort of bad. You want them to be really bad. So to me, when you're looking at the Final Four, well, A, you need to rack up wins because if you lose a few to that group, then it's going to be really tough to be an elite team because of just how difficult the rest of your Western schedule is. But beyond that, also, you want some of those teams to be really bad because that's the key to having a loaded buyout market. You'll see teams that are hesitant if they're winning 30, 35 games to let those types of players go. If they're winning 15, 20 games, they probably won't be that hesitant for a lot of reasons. You're going to see them more willing to cut that player a favor to let him go to a contender and hopefully bank some goodwill with the agent, all while improving your lottery odds at least a little bit for the upcoming draft. So to me, that's what you look for from Tier 3. If any team's going to make a move up, it would be Memphis, but personally I'd be a little surprised just based on the strength of those top 11. Anyway, with that, I think we've had enough talk for one day. This is just my initial beginning of the season overview of the Western Conference as it pertains to the Houston Rockets and what you should be watching for. Tomorrow, we will shift our focus back to the actual Rockets and what's going on on the floor here in Houston as they get ready for the regular season opener Wednesday night against the New Orleans Pelicans. Until then, the best place to reach me will be on Twitter. I'm on there every day. Of course, we have this show every day now, but I'm on Twitter much more than that. So if you want more updates from me in the interim, the best place to get it is there. Follow me at Ben Dubose, simply my name, B-E-N-D-U-B-O-S-E, and you can follow the show at Lockdown Rockets. We've also got a website, onrockets.com, a Facebook at Facebook.com slash rockets, and an email address, LockedOnRockets at gmail.com. All ways that you can access our prior content, ask me questions about the show or inquire about becoming a potential sponsor of our rapidly growing program, just as my friends at Vivid Seats were today. Remember, download the Vivid Seats app or go to VividSeats.com and use the promo code LOCKEDON and you can get $20 off your orders as a new customer of $200 or more, your first order, that is. Also, if you haven't subscribed to us already, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Megaphone, wherever you listen to your podcast, you can probably find us because we're part of a great network of shows at the Lockdown Podcast Network. Subscribe to us. You'll get the episodes right when they come out and leave a five-star review. That's how we can remain viable by looking attractive to potential advertisers and keep this thing going as the most regular podcast covering Houston Rockets basketball. Also, at those platforms, you've got great shows with local experts across the NBA, NFL, even some major league baseball and college sports here in the Houston area. That includes Locked on Texans, hosted by Robert Land and Brian Patterson. The Texans, on a three-game winning streak, now tied for first place in the AFC South somehow. If you want to hear insight on what's going on with Deshaun Watson and J.J. Watt across town, check out Robert and Brian's show, Locked on Texans. And if you want to hear about the college football world and the Texas A&M Aggies, who are having a pretty strong season out in the SEC, first year for Jimbo Fisher, check out the Locked On Aggies podcast hosted by my buddy Taylor Travis. With those plugs out of the way, this will do it for today. Again, uh, since we're just one day off from the opening of NBA season, that's why we went a little general today, previewing the landscape as a whole. Tomorrow, we'll be back to our micro-focus on the Rockets their team, and what they're going to have on the court, maybe even a look at New Orleans as well with a New Orleans guest. Stay tuned with what we're able to line up there. For now, enjoy the rest of your day, and stay tuned for more updates right here at Locked on Rockets, your home for podcast commentary on Houston Rockets basketball.